and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 4th of November with me in Welsh. We've got a bumper episode this time. I've been in Amsterdam this week at the Innovation Forum Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference and coming up are some reflections recorded at the event from Tesco's Anna Terrell, April's Craig AAA and Farmstrong Foundation's Michael Hendricks. Recently, Innovation Forum's B. Stevenson talked with Clem Ogurji, a consultant for Global Plastic Action Partnership and formerly Vice President for Public Affairs, Communications and Sustainability for West Africa at Coca-Cola about why waste collection infrastructure is inadequate and unable to keep up with the demand in areas of the continent. Highlights of their conversation are coming up a bit later. First up though is B with this week's Sustainable Business News. The Ellen MacArthur Foundation has stated in its new progress report that big businesses are unlikely to meet their commitments to only use reusable, recyclable or compostable plastic packaging by 2025. EMF's new Plastics Economy Global Commitment was launched in 2018 and now has around 80 corporate signatories such as Mars, Unilever, Coca-Cola and L'Oreal, amongst hundreds of other organisations from across sectors. The report warns that companies are being hindered in part by a global lack of investment in collection and recycling infrastructure. A high adoption of flexible packaging, like films and sachets, has also jeopardised company commitments, as these are difficult to recycle at scale. The report says that more work needs to be done to promote reuse over recyclability. 42% of signatories have not yet incorporated any reuse models into their packaging strategies. Ex-President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva's close victory in Brazil's presidential election has been received by many as a moment of hope for the Amazon rainforest, as it approaches a crucial tipping point. Climate has been a cornerstone of Mr da Silva's campaign, and his presidency will now bring a return to the enforcement of environmental regulations in Brazil, with pledges including the removal of illegal miners and ranchers from the Amazon. His more ambitious proposals include the creation of a ministry dedicated to indigenous peoples and a national climate change authority to ensure that Brazil's policies serve its goals under the Paris Agreement. Whilst De Silva's return to government signals a tide change, enforcement may prove difficult, with a divided Congress and so narrow an electoral mandate, campaigners warn. He will take office on the 1st of January. UK supermarket Tesco, in its partnership with WWF, has called for the new UK government to take urgent action on on-farm food waste. Their new hidden waste report has found that more than 6 million meals worth of edible food, or about 3.3 million tonnes per year, goes to waste before leaving the farm gate in the UK. The report argues that the current cost of living crisis and growing number of people in the UK facing food insecurity and poverty has made governmental action even more crucial. Innovation Forum has previously reported that Tesco itself has announced plans to halve food waste in its own operations by 2025. Microsoft and the Boston Consulting Group have published a joint report on the work of 15 companies at the forefront of sustainability innovation and change, including Microsoft itself. The study found that 68% of corporate environmental leaders were internal hires, and 60% of sustainability team members joined without expertise in the field. In an interview with Reuters, Microsoft Corp President Brad Smith said that thousands of businesses will fail to meet their net zero and climate pledges due to a shortage in staff trained in sustainability. He stressed that employers must take a broader look at their investment in employee learning and training. They should bring in instructors, pay for continuing education, and convene on carbon reduction strategies. So I was in Amsterdam this week at Innovation Forum's Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference. It was great to see so many familiar faces and to meet some new podcast listeners. Thank you for taking the time to come and say hello. 
While I was there, I managed to grab a few minutes with some of the conference panel participants. Coming up now are some quickfire comments from Tesco's Anna Terrell, April's Craig AAA, and Farmstrong Foundation's Michael Hendricks. I'm at the Sustainable Landscapes and Conscious Forum in Amsterdam and joining me is Anna Terrell, Interim Sustainability Director with Tesco. Welcome Anna. Thank you Ian. We've just had a really interesting session looking at how businesses are outlining their 2030, 2040, 2050 targets. How are you doing that at Tesco? We've got established science-based targets. We put these in place back in 2017 and that links back to our net zero commitment. We're actually going through the process now of revalidating those science-based targets using the new flag guidance that was issued this year. Hopefully by the end of the year we will have targets in place for our scope three, for our four biggest scope three emissions hotspots if you like supply chains and that will then map out for us what that interim pathway needs to look like for things such as beef dairy poultry and pork but obviously we can still carry on doing the work whilst we wait for those targets and what we're really focused in on is our emission hotspots within scope three and what we're calling the big bets so that includes low carbon fertilizer methane reducing additives it's looking at the role that dietary shifts can play as well as obviously importantly ensuring that we can eliminate deforestation and land conversion within our supply chains and reducing food loss and waste so there's a lot there but very practically focused in the interim as we wait for those targets. Adina, that's a really interesting point that came out of the session was if you are going to have a focus on 2050, what you really should be thinking about is 2030 because yeah. you don't get to a 2050 net zero situation yeah. unless you really hit your targets for yeah. 2030. So what are the barriers then that you're seeing at Tesco to you achieving your targets? Well, I think a lot of it's to do with data, right? And particularly when we think about scope three, more than 30% of our scope three emissions footprints, it's in our agricultural supply chains. We're really dependent on those actors within those agri supply chains to be able to understand, access, capture, monitor data to be able to actually share that down the supply chain. If we don't have good data and robust methodologies, then it's really difficult to know how and where we're having an impact. It requires a real collective effort to build capacity and understanding within the supply chain to be able to support doing that in a coherent way. Data, I would say, is the perennial issue, but it, it very much is so when it comes to agri-emissions. I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot, of, a lot about data over the next couple of days. Anna Terrell from Tesco, thanks very much indeed. Thanks so much. Joining me at the Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Forum is Craig Tribuli from April. Welcome, Craig. Good morning. We talked a bit over the event around roadmap. So what does April's roadmap to 2030, 2040, 2050 look like? April's roadmap is called April 2030 and it was developed after about 18 months, nearly two years of negotiation with management and operational teams to ensure that we could set targets across land, environment and people that were operationally implementable, challenging and really stretch targets for the team. We ended up with 18 deliverable targets that are now embedded in operational managers KPI and we report on those annually but really targeting our 2030 as our endpoint and that's not to ignore 2040, 2050. I think it's a recognition of that urgency that action needs to be taken now. The investment needs to be front-ended if we want to deliver on 2030, 2040 and 2050 commitments. Yeah, that's certainly something I'm hearing a lot over the last couple of days is that if we're going to think about 2050, 2030 is going to be the really important, that's what we're going to target right now. Mm. Well, in fact, we heard it in one of the sessions this morning, 2030 actually means 2025. And having that infrastructure, the investments, the target setting and the action on the ground needs to be happening now if you want to meet those 2030 targets. Yeah, it's great to see that there's a real sense of urgency. 
Creature Belief from April. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ian. Joining me is Michael Hendricks from the FarmStrong Foundation. So Michael, we're going to be talking a bit about smallholder farmers and how they can gain access to the carbon markets and benefits from the carbon markets. What are the keys for smallholder farmers benefiting from the carbon markets? It's of course a very potentially, put it that way now, a source of revenue. Uh, the interesting thing of, of carbon, now if you compare it with, uh, with their normal commodities, the agricultural commodities, uh, you can actually do the payouts now off season. So when it gets really tight for farmers, now you have this additional amount of money you, you can pay to them. Uh, you can also split these payments. Uh, so what we do, we pay part of that money you now when it gets uh, the tightest part of the year, which is July, August, and then reserve 25% for an extra payment just before the kids go to school. Uh, so you try to combine now that part and the fact that it's uh, basically now you are now getting out of the normal commodity cycle uh, I think that's also important so uh, where you have uh, prices can move up and down uh, so if you have more commodities now you, you basically now could neutralize movements of the other sure and I think in specifically in carbon I think the future looks very bright uh, so I think that the price of carbon will now continue to appreciate over the next years to come uh, which is beneficial to the farmers I think often in smaller programs we see uh, is farmers have seldom smaller farmers have seldom really an incentive to do what we expect them to do uh, be because now they don't get any more money they, they don't produce much more and if they produce more uh, the price is getting lower and I think when we talk about uh, agroforestry system and transformation agroforestry systems it will actually induce the farmer to start doing actually more of these good agricultural practices because it will give him more uh, revenues on the carbon side but at the same time if you do better agriculture practice like pruning and cocoa coffee and, and so forth you get also more of your primary product so it's actually quite a few additional advantages than you would say on the first side. It does feel like it's the way that farmers, smaller farmers in particular, can benefit from the nature-based solutions that yep. we're talking about so much. Yeah, yeah. It is coming from something which is on itself really a positive activity. Now if you, if you grow trees, if you plant uh, trees, uh, indigenous forest species, I, should, I don't think you should uh, grow teak or eucalyptus or other stuff, but now indigenous forest uh, species, they absorb the CO2 and the guys get paid for it. Eh? So I think I rarely use uh, the win-win situation, but I think this is like win-win-win, you know, everybody has to gain. Yeah, it does feel like that, doesn't it? For now, Michael Hendricks yeah. from the Farmstrong Foundation, thanks very much. Okay. A couple of weeks ago, Innovation Forum's B. Stevenson spoke with Clem Agurji, a consultant for Global Plastic Action Partnership and formerly Vice President for Public Affairs, Communications and Sustainability for West Africa at Coca-Cola. They discuss how companies can communicate with consumers around end-of-life waste disposal and the opportunities for business in developing domestic markets for recycled plastics. We're going to talk about communicating with consumers around sustainable packaging. But first, for a bit of context, Clem, could you talk a bit about the nature of waste collection infrastructure that's in place for consumers in the areas of West Africa that you've worked over? I think the challenges around collection in this region is very well known. A lot of people use the term there is lack of collection infrastructure. I really don't think that that is the reality. I think the reality is that there is collection infrastructure, but unfortunately the collection infrastructure is inadequate and in most cases outdated. And because of this, it's unable to cope with the rapidly increasing volumes as well as the complexity of municipal solid waste that are churned out by cities and communities in the region. What we find is that there are three categories of collectors within the region. You have the municipal authorities, most of whom, of course, have aging infrastructure. They have limited scale and reach in terms of the geographies that they cover. There is limited value creation from the waste that they collect. So you find that a majority of the waste that is collected by the municipal authorities end up in landfills in most cases. 
Then the second category of collectors would be the private sector collectors. And these are very few in terms of, I mean, ones that are properly structured to do the work. You have a couple of material recovery facilities that have been set up in some countries in the continent. Again, there are very few of them in each of the countries. And even the ones that exist do not quite have a large scale. So some of them are still at small or medium scale operation. So they collect and recycle. And then you have, of course, the informal collectors, which are the best known of the three categories and have a lot of exposure to the international community. So here you have the waste pickers who are regarded as the backbone of the collection system in the region. And this particular category is plagued with a lot of challenges, apart from the hazards of working in the dump sites and collecting from very unhealthy and unsafe places. They also deal with the challenges of low prices and inconsistent demand. So basically, you have a very challenged waste collection system in the region, which I should say is not limited to West Africa, but I, I guess, you know, is commonplace in the continent as well as in most of the developing world. So taking this into account, how great is the challenge of then communicating with consumers around end-of-life disposal in a jurisdiction like this where norms vary in terms of legislation, systems in place, and even culturally? Obviously, communication happens at the local levels. Either you're communicating at a national level or at a community level. Regional communication is not quite the norm. Of course, that would have to be tailored in the context of the reality of the particular location in which you are communicating. Communicating around end-of-life disposal is a challenge because the infrastructure for end-of-life disposal is not there, and so it becomes a huge problem. And i give you an example. I mean, one of the basic infrastructure for collection would be the sorting infrastructure. So you sort your waste at the home level or at the commercial level, and then you expect that these wastes will be collected in a sorted fashion as well. But unfortunately, what you find, particularly with the municipal authorities, is that they come with a single truck which has just one compartment. Even if you've sorted your wastes, invariably, these wastes often end up in the same compartment. And so you find that the incentive to sort is really not there, especially because you don't get extra value for sorting your wastes in many cases. And even when the waste is sorted, the collection infrastructure at the municipal level, and even in terms of the informal sector and the private sector levels as well, do not have that facility for segregation at the point of collection. And so it becomes a lot more modeled up. With your past experience at corporates like the Coca-Cola Group, what would then be your best practice advice for businesses communicating with consumers around end-of-life disposal? It's a lot easier when you are communicating specifically on a particular material. For instance, in Coca-Cola, it was mostly about plastics. The glass bottles have a fully developed collection stream because it's a returnable glass bottle. So the business gets it back from the trade and therefore there is no issue of pollution in terms of waste. There's very limited waste print for the glass bottles within the region. And then, of course, the aluminum cans also is very valuable because there's a highly developed collection and recycling system. And so it gets taken care of very easily. The problematic packaging would be the plastics. And so communicating around that would mean that you then have created a specific platform that enables you to get the bottles back. So you can communicate specifically on that and on what you as an organization have put on ground to collect the bottles back from consumers using your agents within the region. Obviously, again, you can only communicate this in the areas where you have a collection point. 
or where you have agents who are collecting for you because if you're asking consumers to dispose rightly and the question is so who do they dispose to and where do they dispose the bottles to and if they put the bottles in the normal waste collection bin everything still ends up in the dump site so i think what we did in coca-cola which is what the company is still doing as part of its world without waste initiative and the target of collecting a certain percentage of what it puts out there is to ensure that we have arrangements with certain collectors and then we support in setting up collection booths you know in various communities where consumers can return the bottles to and get some incentives it could be cash it could be points and it could be some other kind of gifts that incentivizes them to bring back the bottles so it's a very limited skill that you're communicating and it's really targeted at the consumer group for which you've provided a certain platform or facility to be able to take back the bottles in terms of getting consumers to do that how difficult is it to break this deeply ingrained norm and habit of buying consuming and throwing away the consumers are throwing away not by choice and i don't think it's by habits but i think it's just because there is mostly no alternative for them in places where there is a collection system that incentivizes consumers to bring the bottles we see an uptick in consumers being able to return the bottles and get some benefit. And a number of social enterprise initiatives have been launched by a couple of entrepreneurs around collecting these bottles. And they've been very successful in certain communities. Now, the challenge is there are three consumption locations. When you consume at home, what do you do with the bottles? More often than not, you put the bottles in the collection bin. And because there is no culture of waste segregation and waste separation, not only at the consumer level, but also at the waste management level in many of the cities in the region, you find that the incentives for consumers to separate waste is not there. That's basic and that's very structural. The second level of consumption would be in commercial environments, for instance, in offices and in businesses. In some cases, there may be the opportunity for segregation because businesses, to some extent, depending on how socially aware they are, would have segregated bins in which these things are disposed by those who are supposed to do that. But the most problematic area would be the on-the-go consumption, and that's where you find the plastics becoming much of a menace because people are consuming on the go, whether they are in public transportation or whether they are just walking down the road and maybe they are in parks as well. So if there are no bins in the parks, if there are no bins on the roadsides, if there are no bins in the public transportation system, these things get littered everywhere. And that's where the biggest challenge is. In fairness to consumers, I really do not think that it's fair to put the blame on the consumers. I think that there is a whole lot of things that can be done by the stakeholder spectrum. Businesses need to work with governments to ensure that more separation infrastructure is provided and also ensuring that even the disposal trucks ultimately get compartmentalized so that wastes are collected according to the categories in which they've been separated. And then, of course, along the streets, within the public transportation system, in parks and other public places, that infrastructure is provided where consumers can dispose of those bottles. And I think if we did that, there would be a significant reduction in the amount of litter in the environment. So you would say that that would be the next frontier to improve the recycling of plastics and packaging in Africa? Absolutely. I think there is need to invest in that infrastructure that first and foremost enables separation 
both at the home level, at the household level, at the commercial level, and of course at the waste disposal level. So it's important to ensure that that infrastructure runs through the entire spectrum of collection. But then beyond collection, I think the underlying problem, which is hardly focused upon or talked about, is the lack of domestic market for recycled plastics. Because at the end of the day, this is supposed to be driven by a business mindset. Collection cannot be sustainable if it is done solely as a public utility or funded by donor agencies. We've got to be able to develop this as a business opportunity that entrepreneurs can plug into and everyone can create value from it. And the way to do that is to ensure that within the countries, there is a domestic market for recycled plastics. One of the biggest opportunities that the region is missing is the inability to reuse bottles for beverages and food packaging. You find that in many of the markets, there is no approval for food grade recycled plastics. There are no standards, there are no approvals, and therefore this opportunity has not been adopted. So imagine if there was to be a regulation around businesses to reuse beverage bottles or recycled. That would significantly create the incentive for people to collect. That will increase the value that collectors get from the bottles that are collected. And that would completely open up the value chain to new investments. If we're able to address the market issue, create a market, then you know, there will be a chain reaction and the market forces will drive the impetus that is needed to boost recovery and collection. The second thing beyond the beverage industry is also, when you look at the textile industries, for instance, the continent is largely dependent on imported textiles. But we know that the bottles, particularly the PET bottles, can be recycled back into synthetic fiber. And this can support the textile industry. But because the textile industry in the continent is very low and very weak, it is not able to create this demand that can then help to move the bottles. Another sector that I believe can be a potential off-taker for plastic waste would be the construction industry. We know you can use the bottles to make roads, you can use the bottles to make bricks, you can use the bottles for a whole lot of applications in the building sector. But these opportunities have not been tapped. Once we can create a market that ensures that there is a huge demand for plastic waste and plastic waste application across industrial purposes, then of course there is an incentive for collection and the challenge right now would not be around people not collecting bottles because then there is no demand for it and the pricing right now is still very low and not incentivized. So most of the bottles that you find people collect on the continent are actually exported and that's a big challenge. So a call to action for cross-sector and cross-industry collaboration. Thank you so much, Clement Gorgi, for coming on the podcast. Thank you, B. I'm happy to be here. Thanks. As ever, the Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all the latest analysis and interviews. And there are details of Innovation Forum's spring conference series on ethical trade, apparel and textiles, the future of food and climate action for business. And we'll have much more detail about all of that in the podcast over the coming weeks. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh and until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.